Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Um, Karin uh, continued our series in Judges last week, and um, I pick up as we get introduced to Samson. And uh, a lot of you know that my wife is a doula. One of the interesting things uh, about being pregnant as a woman is there are certain things you're not allowed to eat. Some of them are obvious. Alcohol, don't do drugs, those kinds of things are, are obvious. But then there are the less obvious ones, like cream cheese, blue cheese, uh, you know, prosciutto, you're not allowed to do that. Um, as, as, the, as we get kind of into new phases, the list gets longer and longer and longer. Um, and Corin said that if she were to start a business, it would be this, delivering sushi to postpartum wards. <laughs> because for nine months, these pregnant moms have not been allowed to have sushi, and the first thing they want, Corin's a doula, so she's done this a lot, the first thing they want is sushi. And, uh, and so it's interesting, when a woman becomes pregnant, there are certain things that she's allowed to do and not allowed to do. And we look at this in Judges verse, chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. The Israelites again did things that the Lord saw as evil, and he handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man from Zorah from the Danite clan whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to become pregnant and had not given birth to any children. The Lord's messenger appeared to the woman and said to her, even though you have been unable to become pregnant, other translations say, even though you are barren and haven't given birth, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or brandy or to eat in anything that is ritually unclean because you are pregnant and you will give birth to a son. Do not allow a razor to shave his head because the boy is going to be a Nazarite for God from his birth. He'll be the one who will begin Israel's rescue from the power of the Philistines. Did you notice that she has no name? We don't know who she is. She's just referred to as the woman or his wife. She's anonymous in this. And it really kind of captured my attention, and I, I did a bit of a study in terms of in terms of why would this be? Why, why would this woman, the mother of Samson, who actually ends up being the deliverer of, of Israel, why would she be anonymous? And no one can seem to agree. Some people said, well, maybe she wasn't an Israelite. And in, the, in those days, it was a real no-no for Israelites not to marry um, people that, or to marry people that were not Israelites. But that doesn't make sense uh, because in the Bible, Rahab is mentioned by name. In the Bible, Bathsheba is mentioned by name. In the Bible, Ruth is mentioned. I don't really know why she's anonymous. But I felt as I was preparing this that there was something in this for us within the context of how many of us feel anonymous, how many of us feel unknown. And the thing about anonymity is that it's, it's one of the things that only really famous people want and criminals want. Let's be honest. So famous people, they just want to be anonymous. And criminals, they definitely they want to be anonymous. But famous people, they want to have it both ways, right? Let's be honest. So when it suits them, they put the baseball cap on and the, and the dark glasses and they're like that. And 
Um, I remember uh, a situation when I was in South Africa where a, a famous person got on the plane and he happened to be a really, really tall, large person. And um, he wanted to be upgraded to first class. And so he started this, this whole scene. And, um, and so she said, no, sir, you haven't paid for it, whatever. And, and so he stands up and he says, do you know who I am? And so the stewardess did the most amazing thing. And she said, excuse me, everyone, excuse me. Does anyone know who this is? Because he seems to have forgotten who he is, you know? <laughs> you kind of can't have it both ways, you know, if you want to do that. I remember um, uh, I'm Greek, and so when Karen came into our family, um, for the longest time, she was referred to as she. Is she coming? Uh, she was referred to as the foreigner. So... <laughs> Um, while we were dating, we would be having lunch, even when we were engaged. And, and uh, my mom would say, is the foreigner coming, you know? Um, one of the worst things was when my grandmother used to refer, and my grandmother is a legitimate, well, was, she's now passed away, like the old Greek, black, you know, the whole thing. Um, and, uh, and so she would say, she would call Karen Barbara. Um, now, it's definitely a Freudian slip. Because Barbara, the root of that is barbarian, which is not a Greek, you know. And so for the longest time, Karen was known as she or the foreigner. For the longest time in South Africa, I was known as Karen's husband. Because in South Africa, Jim and Maggie were leading a very large church that had planted multiple churches. And so we were known according to who we were connected with. And for a lot of us, that is a sense of pain connected with that. For a lot of us, we are unknown, or we feel unknown. We feel like we are anonymous. Now, the amazing thing is her anonymity did not mean that she was unseen, and it did not mean that she was unknown or abandoned, because God sought her out. There's no record of her actually praying to be with child. The angel meets her, and says, even though you're barren, you are going to have a child. And it's this amazing thing where a lot of us ask the question, does anyone know who I am? Does anyone know where I am? Does anyone know how hard this is? And is anyone willing to help me? And I'm sure these are questions that she had. Now, I know this sounds cliche and trite, but God does know your name. God does know where you are, and He is able to help. And as we go through the Scripture, you'll be able to see that. I wonder if you could just, if you're comfortable, close your eyes and listen to what God says in the Scriptures. This is a Psalm of David while he's hiding in a cave. Lord, you have examined me. You know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. Even from far away, you comprehend my plans. You study my traveling and resting. You are thoroughly familiar with all my ways. There isn't a word on my tongue, Lord, that you don't already know completely. You surround me, front and back. You put your hand on me. That kind of knowledge is too much for me. It's so high above that I can't reach it. You are the one who created my innermost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. 
you yourself have kept track of my misery. You have put my tears into your bottle. Aren't they on your scroll already? Father, I pray, even right now, as we choose to turn to you this morning, I want to pray if there are people here that are feeling anonymous or unknown, I want to pray that they would sense you turning towards them. That they would recognize that you know them, that you see them, and that you want to help them. As we continue, we see this promise that the angel brings to her. And the promise is that she will be with child. Now remember, barrenness in the Old Testament times was a sign of judgment. Uh, there was always the sense of, what have you done wrong in order to be barren? If, if your life was right with God, you wouldn't be in this place. And so he comes to her and he says to her that even though you're barren, you will be with child. And in the Bible, uh, barrenness and unfruitfulness is connected. And unfruitfulness specifically connected with our relationship to Jesus. The thing that we've got to understand is that fruitfulness is something that is expected of people that are in relationship with Jesus. One day Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples and he sees this fig tree and it's a healthy fig tree and he goes up to the fig tree and he wants to go and pick a fig and there are no figs on the pig, on, on the pig tree. <laughs> that would be an interesting tree, wouldn't it? There's no fruit on the fig tree and Jesus curses the fig tree. And it's always been something like, was he really hangry? Is that what happened? Was he just so mad that he went and he couldn't find a fig and he was just in his anger, he cursed that. And we know that that's not what happened. We know that it was, it was used as a visual aid for Israel to basically say this, you cannot look like a fruitful tree and not have fruit. And so it was not unreasonable for Jesus to expect fruit because it was the season for figs. And so he went and he cursed that tree. The thing that Jesus is most concerned with and has always been concerned with, especially why he attacked the religious leaders, was this appearance of fruitfulness, but of no actual fruit. And that's what was so unacceptable to him. Now, let me say this. Seasons are normal. Um, if you're in a season of unfruitfulness, maybe it's because you are in a season of winter or fall. Seasons are normal. Um, the buds of the fruit begin to come through in spring. The fruit is harvested during winter. It is unreasonable to expect fruit during winter. There are times where we will be less fruitful. There are times where things will be more difficult. There are times where where even that tiny little bud feels like all of the energy that we have has gone into that tiny little bud. But barrenness is not a dead plant. What Jesus is talking about here is not something that has died, not something that is not abiding in the vine. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the ability to bear fruit in a way that brings glory to Him. So one of the things we've got to ask ourselves is what is the fruit and what makes us barren? Those of us that are in life groups have gone through the gospel identities, and one of the things that we chatted about in our life group is we need to shift our language. And we need to shift our language from I need to try harder 
because that's what maybe some of us feel. Oh, okay, okay, I've got to try harder to grow this fruit. I've got to try harder to actually being able to live in the identities that Jesus has already purchased for us. Just like Sean mentioned this morning, that we have a new nature. It is impossible for us not to bear fruit if we are rooted in Jesus Christ. Our nature has changed. We will bear fruit. And yet Jesus consistently tells us, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Jesus is constantly challenging us. Do you uh, pick berries from a fig tree or vice versa? Do you get thorns from a fig tree? No, you get thorns. So what he's saying is there has to be a sense in which we are aware of what is happening in our lives. Funny thing is, Paul says, avoid the works of the flesh and function in the fruit of the Spirit. Avoid the works of the flesh and function in the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not fruits, it's fruit. It's a singular thing. Galatians 5 verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So why is it sometimes that we feel, even though we are in Jesus, that we are maybe unfruitful? Well, Jesus helps us in Mark 4, verse 7, and then 18 to 20, he says this, Some other seed fell on thorny plants. The thorny plants grew and choked the seed, and they produced nothing. They didn't die. The plants didn't die. They just didn't produce fruit. Later on, when the disciples asked him, what was all that about? He says, the others are like seeds scattered amongst the thorny plants. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of this life, or anxieties and cares, the false appeal of wealth, pursuit and riches, and the desire for more things, or the pleasures of this world, break in and choke the word, and it bears no fruit. The seed that was scattered on good soil are those who hear the word and embrace it. They bear fruit, and in one case yield 30 to 1, in another case 60 to 1, and in another case 100 to 1. I want to say those three areas are the things that choke the life out of our ability to bear fruit in Jesus. Anxieties and cares. I want to say anxieties and cares are generally, if you're asking this question, if your question starts, but what if? If any question you're asking about any area of your life, whether it's relational, whether it's emotional, whether it's financial, but what if, it may be an anxiety or care. The pursuit of riches is kind of really obvious, but I want to say this because Jesus continued to say this as he was talking in parables. The pursuit of riches is really about security, and it's trying to solve the same thing that the person that is being choked with anxiety and fears is, if I have enough money, then I will be secure. So God, what if this happens? The pursuit of money is like, money will make me secure so that I'm not going to have to ask that question. And the last one is the desire for comfort. I remember a couple of months ago, I was, uh, I was just spending some time with God and I was frustrated, and so I was praying for the person who was frustrating me. And as God does, He asks me some questions, and I'm like, yeah, but, but, and then eventually had to repent of my role in the situation. 
And then I remember the Spirit of God saying to me so clearly, Nick, you are very highly committed to your own comfort. And it was in that moment where I was like, oh, that's choking fruit. My desire for comfort, it's not necessarily sin, not necessarily I'm desiring something that is in, in, in opposite of what God's will and purpose is, but my desire for comfort and convenience is what is causing this. And it's my desire for comfort and convenience that is actually choking some of this. So what does someone like me do? I just rush towards control. And I'm like, okay, I will fix this. I will try harder. I will do more. And God's like, no. Because I tell you what, when I look at the fruit of the Spirit, and I don't know whether some of you are like this, I don't feel a sense of joy. I feel a sense of shame. I look at my life and I think love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'm like, is two out of seven a good grade? <laughs> and, and I'm there and I'm like, okay, God, help me to be more loving. Help me to be more joyful. Help me to be, okay, I'm going to do this. And then he reminds me of the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. You are rooted and grounded in love. This is not something you have to work up. This is something you need to understand that your roots, because your nature has been changed by Jesus, are different. And turn to me, invite me in, and I will help you. Because your roots are in me, you will see the fruit come. I've used this before. How many of you have ever passed by a fruit tree and heard it strain? You haven't? You know why? It is simply designed, it is, it's its nature to bear fruit. It's not striving or struggling to do anything. It just is doing that. And I know for some of you this is, this is difficult, and my wife always says the wrong people hear the wrong thing. But you are not going to solve an issue of being choked by thorns by trying harder. One of the things you have to do is identify the thorns. One of the things you have to do is go to God and say, Father, please help me turn towards you in these areas of anxiety, in these areas of, of pursuing money or pursuing pleasure. But it's that turning to and understanding that we are rooted in His love that enables us to be more fruitful. Maybe like this anonymous woman, some of us have just settled into our barrenness. Like I said, there's no record of her actually asking for anything. Maybe some of us are in this place where it's like, I guess this is what the Christian life looks like. I guess this is it for me. And we're not asking. Maybe we are like Hannah. And Hannah was also a woman that was barren. And she had a very, very different approach. Hannah is the mother of Samuel, the last judge the most famous and most godly judge. And this is what it says of Hannah. She was in bitterness of soul. And she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. She was praying so emotionally at the temple that Eli came up to her and said, you can't be drunk at the temple, you have to go home. 
That is the kind of emotion that she was exhibiting. That's the kind of anxiety of soul that she had, the bitterness of soul. God, will you give me a child? God, will you give me a child? Look at these two women opposed. The one anonymous woman, in her barrenness, God visits her. She doesn't even ask. And Hannah is there praying, God, will you? God, will you? And the amazing thing, those of you that know, is both Samson and Samuel were Nazarites. Both Samson and Samuel, I almost put the Samson on, I know they're similar words. Both Samuel and Samson were supposed to be dedicated to the purposes of God. And we see this kind of come together in Scripture for us. This idea of God, please will you, or living in the sense of, is this all there is? I'm just going to settle, that way I'm not going to be upset, that way I'm not going to be wounded if I ask. Whatever our situation, what we see is that God acts on our behalf, but He doesn't always act in the way that we expect it. So let's go back and look at this. Judges 13 verse 8, what has happened is the angel has come to her and she's alone and the angel says to her, now you are pregnant and you will have a son and she goes to her husband and she says, this is what's happened. Can you imagine being that husband? Your wife has just come back from the field. You guys haven't been able to have children. She says, this man visited me and says I'm pregnant. <laughs> right. I've heard that before. Okay. So what does Manoah do? He does exactly what we've been speaking about this morning. He turns towards the Lord. He asks the Lord, please, my Lord. Let the man of God who you sent come back to us once more so he can teach us how we should treat the boy who is to be born. This blows my mind. Manoah, her husband, has already settled the fact that this is of God. What he wants is some guidance in terms of what to do as a result of this. God listened to Manoah and sent God's messenger to him once more. She was sitting in the field but her husband Manoah wasn't with her. Let me just say this. Every time Manoah is mentioned, I'm like, ugh. Because he's mentioned a lot in the space of seven verses, which highlights how anonymous this woman is. Anyway, you can have that for free. So the woman hurriedly ran and informed her husband. She said to him, the man who came to me the other day has just appeared to me. Manoah got up and followed his wife he came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? I am, he replied. Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what should the rules for the boy be, and how should he act? I think sometimes when we read these scriptures, we can forget how real and gritty these emotions must be. When you look at Manoah and you think, What, what happened? Did she have an affair? Did she get raped? Is she trying to cover something up? We know that these emotions are real because we, we kind of look forward to another story of a miraculous conception. And what was Joseph told when Mary was pregnant? Hey man, just, just divorce her quietly. This is not good. Obviously, she's been with another man. You can't trust this. Just put her away. And I look at this man and I think to myself, wow, I can't imagine both his confusion and his faith in that moment. The problem is the angel doesn't give any more clarity. He 
he just repeats what he said to her. Don't have any fruit of the wine, don't have brandy, don't touch any unclean animals. He will be a Nazarite. No more clarity. And the problem is there's confusion and anxiety within the context of saying yes to God. And then there is also confusion and anxiety after we have said yes to God. So Manoah and this woman go, and Samson is born. Judges 13, verse 24. The woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew up, and the Lord blessed him. The Lord's Spirit began to move him when he was at Manea Dan between Zorah and Eshtal. Samson traveled down to Timnah. While he was in Timnah, a Philistine woman caught his eye. He went back home and told, to his, fa- told his father and mother, A Philistine woman in Timnah has caught my eye. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother replied to him, Is there no woman among your own relatives? And that, that's not like South Alabama stuff. That means like just in the general family. You, you know what I mean? In the, in the general idea, okay, in terms of, in terms of that. I, I hope no one is from Alabama here. I just realized that. My bad. Sorry about losing three straight times. Um, and so, and they say to him, isn't there a wife from among your own people that you can get rather than the uncircumcised Philistines? Yet Samson said to his father, get her for me because she is the one I want. If she's the one you want, then why? Anyway, so his father and mother didn't know that the Lord was behind this. His father and mother didn't know that the Lord was behind this. He was looking for an opening with the Philistines because they were ruling over Israel at the time. And we'll talk more about that next week as we talk about what actually Samson did. Now, Samson was, as I said, meant to be a Nazarite. What does that mean? And Nazarites were not allowed to drink or consume anything from the vine, like from raisins to grapes to wine to brandy. They weren't allowed to touch any dead bodies, be unclean in any way, and they weren't allowed to have their hair cut, either their beard or their hair. It was an outward sign of an inward devotion. And now the the sign was meant to be one of focus, determination, and the fact that I'm committed and I'm serious. So that's what the angel told the parents. That's what they expected. And here comes Samson. And he wants to marry an unclean woman. And they are totally confused. They were confused before they said yes to God. They were confused after that. This makes no sense. How can this be? And the problem is, as we look forward, there's always a sense of confusion when we are responding to Jesus. When we look at Jesus' birth, full of confusion and uncertainty and anxiety. When we look at his life, we look at his death, we look at his resurrection and his second coming, we look at Mary. When the angel visits Mary and the angel says, the Son of God will be born to you, you won't have intercourse with a man, you will still be a virgin, but you will be impregnated and the Messiah will come through you. That is uncertain. That would bring you anxiety. And Mary says, how can this be? Jesus is born. He starts his ministry. And John the Baptist asks a similar question when he's in prison. Are you the one or should we wait for another? When Jesus dies and the two men are walking on the road to Emmaus 
and they're upset, full of uncertainty, and they're asking this question, and they, they're saying to Jesus that they don't know who's walking with him. We thought he was the one. Mary's saying, how can this be? John the Baptist is like, are you the one? After his resurrection, we thought he was the one. Then Peter and Paul are writing to churches that have established in the New Testament. And, and a lot of the, the heresy that had gone out is Jesus has returned. He has taken people with him and he's left you behind. There's so much uncertainty that's going on there. And then today, just even globally and personally, God, if you're in charge, if this is all part of your plan, then why does it look so pear-shaped? What is happening? If, if your kingdom has come, then why does our life look like this in general? If your kingdom has come in my life, then why, why does it look like that? Maybe there's something that God is inviting you into that is confusing and difficult and you don't have a whole lot of answers for. Maybe there's something that God has already invited you into and you've stepped in, just like Manoah and just like the mother of Samson, and it's not working out the way that you expected it to. They expected Samson to be this good boy, this Nazarite, and he comes home and he's like, that Philistine woman, I want you to fetch her for me. There's so much wrong with that, but let's just land at the, at the thing of like, if you're going to be the deliverer of Israel, why are you wanting to marry a Philistine woman? God, you told me that this is the way that I would flourish in relationships, that I would say no to ungodliness, that I would choose purity, and it's not worked out the way that I thought it would. Or God, you said, you said within the context of marriage that I would be loved, that I would be cherished, that I would be cared for, and it's not worked out that. You said that if I was part of a community of people, that I would receive affection and care and it's not worked out that way. And the thing is, as Paul says to the many churches that he, um, that he was an apostle to, we see through a glass darkly. We don't see everything. We don't experience what we think we should be experiencing. When we look back on our lives, we see the hand of God. I was speaking to a friend of mine and I said to him, I am so grateful. There are moments where I'm so grateful that God just said no where I prayed and prayed and prayed like Hannah. And God's like, no. Not no, and let me tell you why. Just no. Now I look back and I'm like, oh God, I can't believe I was even asking for that. And thank you, Jesus, that you didn't give it to me. We can trust him in confusion and anxiety. Because faith in the midst of confusion is not the same thing as being confused about who we have faith in. It's the object of our faith that helps us ride out our confusion. That's why Paul says to the Corinthian church, God is not a God of confusion. But then he also writes to the same church and he says, you are perplexed, confused, but not crushed or despairing. So he's saying God is not a God that brings confusion, but you will be in confusion from time to time. Now, what is he even talking about? Well, think about Paul. Paul was chosen by God, and he talks about things like shipwrecks, beatings, being abandoned, being in prison. 
Um, everything that he is experiencing, and he's saying this, there are times where I am confused, there are times where I don't know what's going on, but I do know this, that God is not a God of confusion or uncertainty. And it's on that that I can trust. Band, you can come up. As I was praying through this, I feel like God showed me something about being anonymous, being barren, and being confused. I feel like God wants to say to us that you will never be anonymous. You will never be unknown. Because I know you by name. And I know that even as you respond right now, you're like, what a trite little cliche. Whether it's trite or whether it's a cliche, it doesn't make it any less true. And one of the things that we need to rest in our souls is that we are not unknown to him. He knows us by name. We are also not barren. We struggle with barrenness from, times to t- from time to time. There are seasons, there are times when the thorns choke us, but because we are rooted and grounded in him, it is our nature to produce fruit. Some more, 30, 60, 100-fold. Sometimes we don't see it for a while. My neighbor's tree for three years had nothing, and now I'm constantly picking up pomegranates. I mean, I'm grateful, but for three years, nothing happened. Now, all of a sudden, boom. But Jesus, I feel like, is saying to us, you'll never be anonymous, you'll never be barren, but you will be confused. There will be times of uncertainty. Jesus consistently said that. And those things that that we're worried about, God, am I known? Yes, you are. God, am I fruitful? Yes, you are, and you will be, and you will continue to be. God, I don't want to be confused. Can't help you with that. What I can help you with is that I will be with you in it. Now, the thing about storms of confusion and anxiety is we all want the story of the disciples where Jesus was in the boat and there was the storm raging and Jesus stands up and says, peace or be still and it's nice and calm. That's what we all want. Let's be real, right? God... There's a storm of confusion and anxiety. It's okay, Nick. I'll handle it. But Scripture says, though, most often, Jesus doesn't stand up and calm the storm. Most often, we experience Jesus as the anchor of our soul in the middle of a storm. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the anchor that went beyond the curtain in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is the amazing thing about an anchor. When the waves are high, When the wind is blowing, when the thunder is loud, when the lightning flashes across the sky, what do you feel stronger than that? You feel the anchor. You don't feel the anchor when everything is calm. You don't feel the anchor when the sun is shining, when the wind is not blowing. You don't feel it. But man, when things get rough, do you feel that anchor? And then when you feel that anchor because that boat is, is trying to get away in the storm of confusion, uncertainty, and anxiety, that boat is either going to drift away or it's going to be shipwrecked, and you feel that anchor. And as you feel that anchor, your attention is diverted from the storm, the loud thunder, everything that is going on around you, and there's the sense of gratitude, God, thank you for that anchor. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know that in the midst of this, 
I will not be moved. It's in our confusion, it's in our trials and suffering and anxiety, it's when we feel anonymous and barren and confused that we see a God that knows our name. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burnt, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. He knows our name. He is with us. We're going to respond. Uh, we're going to respond as is our custom uh, in doing communion together. There's uh, one table back here. There's two tables here to, to my left. Um, I'm just reminded uh, every time we come to the table, I just, I, I, for me, I just think of it as a table of exchange, you know, and the things that Nick spoke about today, whether it's anxieties or the things that might be tripping you up in the different pursuits of whether it's, whether it's uh, pursuits of riches or comfort, convenience. Maybe you're facing something really, really difficult um, and you'd rather get out of it, like Nick was talking about, but the reality is he's with you in it and that there's something about it that is actually good for you. Uh, there is a good that he is always working out for, for us. He's always working our good. We come to a table where there's an actual tangible reminder of his presence with us and an opportunity for us to exchange the things that we're holding on to for the grace that has already been made available to us. And so we're gonna, we're gonna grab the elements and we're gonna take communion together. There's gonna be people to my left and to, uh, to your right um, after, we, after we do communion in particular. If you're feeling an extra layer of kind of just anxious about something. Maybe there's a circumstance in your life. Maybe you're facing something really, really difficult. Uh, I want to encourage you to receive prayer today before we kind of close. But go ahead and grab the elements. Come back to your to your seat, and I'll I'll lead us through communion. We uh, we hold in our hands the the bread and the cup that represent the body and the blood of Christ. And this whole morning. This whole morning, um, it just seems like the, that God is really trying to orchestrate the idea that he wants to see us <laughs> and wants us to see him. He desires our attention. And he gives us his attention. I think I forget that sometimes. I don't know about you, but God is attentive to you. He turns his attention to you. We have an opportunity now as we take communion to turn our attention to him. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending us your son. Jesus, thank you for coming to be with us. 
We thank you that you calm storms, but we thank you that you sometimes fall asleep in our boats. You're with us. You cook us breakfast. You walk with us. You have sent us your spirit, and we are not orphans. You are with us. We thank you for your body that was broken for us. We take this in remembrance that you are with us. same way that we are so grateful that you are with us, but we are also grateful that you have put our sin away from us. That we have been forgiven. We have been cleansed. And we have been given a new nature by the blessing of your spirit within us. We take this in remembrance of you. The band is going to go back into that song. There's going to be people to my left, to your right. If you're facing something difficult right now and you just need to know God's presence is with you, if you're confused about something and need to know that someone is with you, I encourage you to receive prayer. I'd encourage you to receive prayer for anything. And in particular, there's one thing that I wanted to mention. When Nick shared Psalm 139 uh, earlier uh, about the Psalm of David, it's such a beautiful song of God knowing us. There's this moment that David says, ah, you put put your hand on me. And to me, it's such a comforting thought. But I wonder if there's one, maybe two people in here when you hear that, God's attention towards you, God's hand on you, that it feels almost threatening because of what you've been through in your own life. And I want to, I would love an opportunity to pray for you because that is not the character and the nature of our Father. Uh, He desires to show you that. So if that resonates with you, I'd love to be able to pray with you. Uh, As the the band sings, um, we'll just dismiss here in just just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.